This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann, and this is Safe Space, a show devoted to subjects that are hard to talk about because they make us feel vulnerable, afraid, or ashamed. Tonight, my topic is celibacy in the Catholic Church, and my guest is Neil McKenty. Neil is an author. He has worked as a television and radio broadcaster in Montreal, Canada for 20 years. Prior to that, he was a Jesuit priest for 10 years and practiced celibacy himself for many years of his formation preceding the priesthood. He is now married. He left the priesthood in 1970, and he remains a Catholic. Welcome to Safe Space, Neil. Thanks, Anne. It's good to be back. Great to have you back. I liked our first conversation, too. So I want to ask you, when you were a young man and you were considering joining the priesthood, how did you feel about celibacy? Well, I'm not sure that uh, celibacy thinking was a major component when I was uh, thinking about the priesthood. I had been convinced by uh, uh, another Jesuit in uh, training when I was still at the University of Toronto, I used to see a lot of him, and uh, he pretty well convinced me that it was God's will that I should be a priest and that I should be a Jesuit. And it was um, the major motivation, I think, was I convinced myself that if I didn't do what God was asking me to do, I would suffer a great deal, perhaps both in this life, but certainly in the next, for all eternity. So that's a pretty powerful incentive. It was a pretty powerful incentive. Uh-huh. And so you thought, this is clear, what I, God wants me to do this, so I have to do it, effectively. And how did you feel about the fact that celibacy was part of the package? I'm trying to remember how I felt about celibacy being part of the package, I entered the Jesuits, I think, when I was 18. So I had not had uh, much sexual experience at all. I had uh, done some a bit of rather innocent fooling around. In the early years of high school, I had done some smooching and kissing. And I remember not long before the date to go to the Jesuits, I... Uh, was at a cottage near where I grew up in Ontario, near Peterborough, and uh, there were a number of uh, young people there, including some young women, and there was a good deal of smooching went on. Now, what I, what I do remember is that I felt very guilty about that, yes. and I thought that the sooner I got to confession, the better. So that the thing about celibacy and the priesthood, the major feeling was guilt. Now let me just understand, though. You felt guilty after this smooching. Yes. This was before you had decided to become a priest. Well, I think I had decided. It was just a question uh, just a few days later, and this shook me up quite badly. A few days later, I was leaving with my mother to go to the Jesuit novitiate. At the age of 18. At the age of 18. I see. So the fact that knowing you were going and had kissed this girl yes. made you feel quite guilty. Quite guilty. And I remember I, I said to myself, I've got to get the confession. Now, there was no place to go to confession within the, before I was leaving in the little town where I grew up. So we went to Toronto and we stayed with friends in Toronto overnight. 
and I got to some parish in Toronto where the priest was holding confessions, and I went to confession, confessed this sexual sin, and uh, this was quite a big deal. Mm. Right. It, it's hard to even put ourselves back in that time. Mm. Right. I should ask you to start out with, how old are you now, Neil? I'm uh, in my 85th year. Uh huh. So we are talking about rather some time ago. Yes, quite some time ago. Yes, but so when you say this is a big deal, help me understand that. What was going on in your mind at the time? Well, and on the one hand, I was uh, going off to a strict uh, Jesuit order to uh, train to become a Jesuit, and I was um, fooling around with chastity. And do you feel that in some way that represented already some ambivalence about yes. it? Yes. Yeah. Ambivalence yeah. about going to the priesthood? Uh, or about being celibate or both? Yes, both. Yeah. Some ambivalence, yes. And some lack of integration and uh, and maturity. Right. You weren't sort of wholeheartedly set on this yet. No. That's a very uh, astute observation. And I don't think, and I spent 25 years in the Jesuits. That's, you say it fast, but it's a long time. Yes. And it's a quarter of a century. And I think that I was ambivalent when I was on that train going to Guelph, where the Jesuit seminary was in Canada. And uh, I remained ambivalent for, the, for a quarter of a century. Well, you could argue that doing something because you feared punishment in the next life it's, that's, a, that's a motivation that's not exactly wholehearted. No. So it kind of makes sense what you're saying. It's quite right. And I remember talking, when I got to the novitiate, I remember talking to a, a fellow novice of mine, Ed Burns, who has spent the last 60 years in India. And I said to him, do you ever have doubts about your vocation? And he said, not really. And uh, this was something that was not part of my experience. And did that shut you up? Did that make you feel, oh, I can't, I shouldn't tell people about this then? something wrong with me that I have these? Well, I certainly told very few people. And Ed, Ed, Edgar Burns was my best friend. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't think I ever raised that again. Right. So effectively, it did shut you up mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. So there you are. You're 18. You know, you're very young, mm -hmm. signing up for this huge life commitment. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, of which celibacy is a, is a, an important part, obviously not all of it. Um, what kind of preparation did you get for the fact that you were swearing off this whole side of yourself? Preparation in the Jesuits for celibacy specifically. Yeah, well, there were there were obviously a, a lot of talks about the three vows: poverty, chastity, and obedience, and a lot of talk about chastity, and. Um, However, the, the, the training, I would say, looking back, was somewhat mechanical. There were two, uh, two observations. We'll, we'll, I will try to illustrate this. We were exhorted again and again to maintain modesty of the eyes. Now, I'll tell you, um, Anne, that I think... For me now, there were others, and there's some of them are still there, are still Jesuits, sixty, right. sixty or so years later. So obviously, it, 
it, it worked for them or they came in with a more integrated personality than I did. Uh, modesty of the eyes, it seemed to me, you know, don't, don't look this person in the face or don't look at her bosom or keep your eyes on the ground was a kind of very mechanical training, mechanical. Yes. The other was Rule 32. Now, Rule 32 was don't touch another person even in jest. Now, it's, when I, it's over 60 years since I learned that rule, and I still remember it word for word. And it probably was a good rule. It, um, I suppose, was meant to tackle any acting out of, of homosexuality in, in, uh, among Jesuit trainees. In other words, that you couldn't touch each other. You, you couldn't touch each other. And, uh, but I think, you know, in a, in, a, in a strange way, both those rules, emphasizing the importance of chastity, really raised the issue in an unhealthy way. How do you mean? Well, every time that you sort of um, looked or confronted a woman, um, you felt a sense of guilt. Because you might have looked at her. Yes, you might have. Well, looked at her. I mean, we didn't have veils on or we didn't have burkas or anything like that. But um, So I don't want to make this too, um, uh, too rigorous. But the, the thought came that if, if you did a, a look at some um, episode that involved a woman and it had any sexual tinge to it, this immediately raised, uh, raised uh, guilty thoughts. Yes. Now, let me give you a, a very dramatic example that is just... There's a place near where uh, I, later on I was teaching as a Jesuit, still in formation. I was teaching in a city called Kingston. And uh, about an hour's drive from Kingston is, is what are called the sand banks. These are lovely banks of sand along uh, Lake Ontario, and and it's a great, great tourist. Uh, well, we drove, because they were so close, when we were still called scholastics, trainees and the Jesuits, we went there for a picnic. And I was with one of my Jesuit friends, and I was walking along the sand, and I looked ahead quite a, a, a good deal ahead, and what I saw was a young couple, quite a distance away, um, lying in the sand, making love. Well, I still remember that quite vividly. And how do you, how do you process that? Did you tell anyone? I didn't tell anyone, not a soul. No, and did you feel guilty somehow yeah, no, that you'd seen it? Of course I felt guilty. Now, did I tell somebody in confession? I might have. Yeah. But I never told anybody outside of confession. So the sense I'm getting from listening to you is that guilt was such a huge part of it. And how were you helped to bear that guilt? How were you helped with it? 
Because you would, by, by definition, you're an 18 year old young man. You mm-hmm. would have sexual thoughts. Of course. You would and you, look and at you, somebody. And you remember, though, the teaching of the church at that time uh, if you had sexual thoughts and you took any pleasure from them, that was a mortal sin. A mortal sin. A mortal sin. Right, I mean, so this, the fear. Is, so we're talking about guilt and fear. Yes, we are. Yes, and so, um, but we even with a mortal sin, you could be absolved of that yes, through you, confession. confession. So it wasn't like you were doomed. No, no, you, you weren't doomed, but you no. you know, better get a confession before you're hit by a truck. Yes, and so, <laughs> right. And so after you confess, say you had had a sexual thought yep. and you did have pleasure from it. Yes. And you confessed. Did you, in fact, feel free from guilt? There was some relief. There was some relief from guilt. But, but Anne, this is a kind of a theme that goes through the whole training period. And it's, uh, it's in terms of growth and maturity, as you, among all people, would know, it's a destructive theme. Yes. It's not a growth th- theme. No. So increasingly you feel guilty about this whole part of your yeah. life that yeah. you have to yeah. sequester off. Yeah. Yes. And how much was this named for you? I mean, as part of your formation, were you helped to know that this might be part of your experience and this is how you could carry it? I mean, were you given the kind of psychological support in managing so- something so challenging as celibacy? I would say the answer is no. There were spiritual directors appointed. Some were more perceptive than others. Um, I remember one, he was in his 80s, and uh, I, I don't know how well he related to this sort of thing. But I think, I'm speaking now just of myself, because others may have reacted differently uh, to the training. But I don't think we had much support. For instance, uh, there were books in our library, the only limited number of titles we could read. The fact that they were in the library and you could access them must have meant that the superiors and the master of novices thought these books would be helpful. One was a book about a man named Doyle. He was an Irish Jesuit And the main thing in this book are the penances that he went through, presumably to try to keep his lust in check. Those penances involved standing in in, uh, uh, ice-cold water all night, uh, uh, hitting himself with brambles, drawing blood. Now... You put that kind of a book into the hands of a novice in an atmosphere that is somewhat charged with, with negative sexuality, and, and you've got a combustion. Right. I mean, we're talking about a relationship to the body, which is one of punishment and pain, as opposed to making any room for pleasure or, lo- or, or longing, mm-hmm. even in the absence of pleasure, just longing. Mm-hmm. Which, which surely was a universal part of all of what you were mm-hmm. feeling and trying I, to struggle with. I think so. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne. This is Safe Space. And my guest is Neil McKenty, a former Jesuit priest, talking about his experience of celibacy in the priesthood. I want to ask you now about um, the, the benefits of it. And I want to say to you, were, 
were there any real benefits of celibacy, either to you as an individual or to the people that you were serving? Well, there were benefits that you could read about in the manuals, and uh, I think it was put to us this way, that because we were committed to celibacy, always in my case with negative connotations. What do you mean? Well, celibacy was not a positive growth experience. For right. Me. It was not a maturing experience. I would say that uh, it would be not too uh, incorrect to say that that celibacy, as it was taught in religious orders like the Jesuits, for many of those people in the uh, in the training period, it was uh, it arrested growth. It arrested growth. Yes, and when you say that, what do you spell that out for me? What do you mean? Well, I mean that um, our uh, emotions were not very healthy. That um, instead of, of growing uh, as a internally secure person with uh, healthy emotions relating to another person, either male or female, th- those emotions were um, were ambivalent. Yes, torn, and it sounds like particularly laden with guilt, as yeah. you said before. Yeah. Right. So, in other words, what I'm hearing you say is that there were benefits in the manual. I there mean, were the benefits in the manual. I was, uh, let me expand on that a little bit. That if you were committed to celibacy and chastity, it freed you to have a more pure relationship with God, and it freed you to be able to make a bigger commitment to your parishioners or your students or whoever you were dealing with. Right, because you'd be more available. You'd be more available. Yes, and so in your experience, did you feel closer to God when you were celibate? I don't think so, Anne. I don't think I felt closer to God. And because there was so much uh, uh, negativity about that, and presumably being closer to God is a positive experience. <laughs> One would hope. Yeah. <laughs> the whole point of the thing. Yeah. Right. And um, now that you're married, do you feel further from God because of it? No, I don't think so. My marriage is, is probably, the well, without any doubt, not probably, is the happiest uh, experience and the happiest relationship of my life. I mean, going into marriage, making a decision for marriage, after I met my wife, Catherine, in Toronto, was a very, I would say that was a growth experience, a positive experience. And uh, we, we, we got involved with a Benedictine monk. We got involved in meditation together. And I would say my spiritual life, my emotional life, was much more rich in an authentic way after my leaving the Jesuits and getting married than it was before. Mm. 
I want to I want to hear more about the process of how you decided to leave in a minute. But before we do that, you've written a, a memoir in which you say very openly that toward the end of your time in the priesthood, you did have a relationship with a woman. Yeah, and. I'd, I wonder if you might tell tell us how you felt about that. Was that a big struggle for you? Was that part of how you left? I think it was one of the um, contributing causes to why I left. Um, I think towards the end of my Jesuit sojourn, uh, those the whole business of celibacy... W- I, we were supposed to sublimate, sublimate uh, our sexual desires into our work, into our apostolate. I don't think I sub- sublimated them at all. I think I suppressed them. And they erupted many years later in what turned out to be a, a physical relationship uh, with uh, a Catholic woman. Um, did that relationship make me happy? Uh, not particularly. Um, was I more comfortable with celibacy after I'd had this experience, which was my first mature experience with a woman? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, it was ridden with guilt, too. Right. How could it not be? Yeah. Right. That makes sense. Um did you end up feeling, you know, I know one of the legacies of the leaders of the church being celibate themselves is this idea that, that somehow sex is dirty or less good or not pure or shameful. Did you, did you, take, did you absorb that message and do you think that affected you when you eventually decided to leave? Well, I think that message, uh, which I received as a, a little boy, six or seven years old, uh, was uh, you got the impression that there was something uh, negative about sex, maybe something evil about it. It took a long time to uh, to uh, work one's way through that, and one of the uh, it was Catherine and our relationship that did more most of all to work my way through. Catherine it. being your wife. Catherine being my wife, yeah, mm-hmm. and. Uh, so your question was... Well, it's interesting. You know, I'm actually going to change my question now. One of the things I wondered in retrospect is whether you feel that um, you were drawn to the priesthood partly because of your own feelings about sexuality. You know, it would seem that the risk of having a celibate priesthood is that it would attract people who were trying to escape a struggle they had internally around sexuality. It would attract people maybe who had maybe more difficulty with sex than the regular population. I wonder, do you think that was true of you? Did that seem to be true of your peers? I don't think it was exactly true of me. As I mentioned earlier in the interview, it was this uh, fear of God and guilt if I didn't follow my vocation. Um... But the whole business of sex being somewhat dirty, by the way, I think that has changed a good deal in the church. I think there's a much more positive spin on, for example, matrimonial sex than there used to be. That it's not just for the procreation of children. It's now for the expression of love. 
between. So that's there, a big change. There, there's a big change, and I would say too, maybe getting off your question a bit here, that uh, probably the perception of problems for young seminarians and scholastics is is much more uh, mature now than it used to be. I think there are more helps, psychological helps, and I think that people who are applying to study for the priesthood now have to go through a battery of tests that hopefully would weed out those who are simply trying to escape uh, tortuous sex lives. So you feel some confidence that the church has really learned on this front and has you know, made, taken steps that screen out people who might be disturbed sexually from entering the Yes, I do. I feel more confident. I think they've put in a certain number of steps that we did not have. Um, but I also feel that uh, I was just reading yesterday about the, the report in Ireland of uh, sexual abuse by priests of hundreds of children and this whole thing is, is this whole thing is still there right and it's terribly disturbing it's terribly disturbing yeah i think the public's perception is that the, the stance of celibacy contributes to that because well, the the men are f- sexually frustrated they don't have they don't have outlets these they have such enormous power over the children and authority, and it's sort of a setup waiting to happen. And one thing we didn't mention in the training period was the tendency towards some homosexuality. Now, did I ever see in my whole 25 years anybody acting out uh, in a homosexual situation? No, I never did. But there were clearly emotional attachments that were developed in an all-male environment that were, you know, they really were going to be frustrated. And it, it added to what I would call a certain degree of element uh, of sexual tension. My understanding, though, was that emotional attachments were discouraged, weren't they? They were. Yeah, so, I mean, I can't help they thinking... They were discouraged. Yes. What a lonely life that they, must have exactly. been. Exactly. So you're not allowed to have a close friend. No. Nope. You're not allowed to touch each other, even in jest. That's right. So it feels so isolated. That, I would say one of the major themes of my years, except when I was extremely active and 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 was... Um, was was having a good deal of success in terms of writing and things like that was loneliness. I remember living in a Jesuit house in New York um, at a prestigious, uh, as a summer editor of a prestigious magazine, America, and uh, not knowing anyone there and just... uh, except for my actual writing of editorials, which I found exciting, um, just being lonely. Wandering around at night uh, at that point, dropping into a bar and having a drink, but, but just being lonely. Yes, it seems like a very painful existence. It's not me. a happy one. 
No, I can understand that. So I want to shift now. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne. This is Safe Space, and I'm talking with Neil McKenty about celibacy and the priesthood to the process that you went through in deciding to leave. Um, had you met Catherine, was was knowing her and falling in love with her part of why you no, left? No, no. I, I met her after I left. Oh, I see. I didn't know that. Sometime so you left I, on your own. So what, My own steam. Yes, and how, what what was it that well, led you Well, I, I, I went to a treatment center for a drinking problem, and I was going to stay at the treatment center for maybe a month. I stayed there six months, and um, I did a lot of writing, a kind of a memoir that I wrote there under the direction of, of a psychologist who was, who was on the staff. I had six months of um, good sleeping, good eating, good exercise, and I just got enough traction which I never had had before. I mean, I discussed with all kinds of Jesuits, even before I was ordained a priest, about whether I should continue. Now I got a good deal of traction. I made a a decision to leave, mainly because I felt this life was not for me. Now you'd say- Because you were unhappy. I guess you were a slow learner. You were there for (laughs) 25 years. And I should have left much earlier. But then, but then, you see, because of the personality I had, I was afraid to leave. Right. Because I didn't know how I could survive out there. Hmm. I remember getting some treatment from a psychiatrist and asking him, well, what if I left? I mean, how would I pay if I got sick? How would I pay my medical bills? He said... We've got medical insurance. You, know, right, you live in Canada. I live in Canada. <laughs> right, but you, well, it makes sense because you were 18. After the age of 18, you had everything looked after. Right. Your needs were met. Everything. And so you hadn't really been an adult on your own nope. before. Nope. Do you think that many people stay for that reason? Well, it's hard for me to answer right. that question, Anne, but uh, I would th- think that some people who appear to be somewhat unhappy, continue in the Jesuits until their deaths. And uh, I don't think it's much of a life for them. Mm-hmm. So there you are. You've left the church. Was there... Not the church, Anne. Excuse uh, me. The, uh, I the priesthood. The, I left the priesthood. Thank you. Yeah. A key distinction. So you had left the priesthood. Was there shame in that for you? Did you feel defensive or apologetic about it? No, I didn't. I felt... Uh, I, I remember sitting down when I actually got moved by one of my Jesuit friends to my first residence in Toronto, sitting down, looking at the phone, and saying, my God, I'm free. Mm. And I just felt exhilarated. Then I couldn't have felt very too much ashamed about it. All those years I was afraid to confide, even with my close friends, the kind of inner perturbation I was going through. But after I left, I decided, and I, I decided, I think I'm going. Uh, there's a story here, and I'm going to write about it, and so, I did. So what I'm hearing is that you didn't feel you could be really authentic no. once you were you were sort of on a pedestal of no. being a Jesuit priest. Exactly. That people had expectations no. of you. You had to live up to a certain ideal. Yes. But once you had left the priesthood, you could be yourself. You could be somebody with internal struggles, and not living up to that ideal. Much more myself, yeah. Much yeah. more authentic. Yeah. Great feeling. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So then you meet Catherine, 
And um, I know we're going to have to stop in a minute, but just tell me a little bit about what that was like for you to fall in love after being a priest for ever since you were 18. Well, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. I mean, Mm. uh, Catherine uh, knocked me over. She was a very uh, lovely and uh, very intelligent uh, woman who was writing speeches for cabinet ministers in Ontario. And... uh, I, I met her, I think, on, as she says, on the dance floor somewhere at a party. And uh, we didn't pick up immediately, but uh, some weeks or months later, uh, we reconnected, and it was just all go from there. I mean, I was sure of this. I was sure of this in a way I'd never been sure about the Jesuit vocation. And the difference is just unbelievable. Right. So, um, last question for you in closing. So, you had said that even from the age of six or seven, you'd been given this message that sex was bad or dirty or even evil. That long preceded the, the priesthood, in other words. Yep. And that um, it took a long time to work through that. What helped you really let go of that idea of sexuality? Well, I think the liberation that I experienced after leaving the priesthood uh, and all those somewhat artificial constraints were gone. And um, I, I would think the main thing was my relationship with Catherine, which is we've been married now for 38 years. And that was the best decision I ever made. I, I think her wisdom and maturity uh, helped me enormously to get on to a more growth path with sex. I mean, it sounds like as I'm listening to you and you talk about your sureness that you knew this was good. Yeah. You just knew it. Yeah. You weren't sort of tortured about it the way no. you had been about no. being a priest. And uh, just a little anecdote, Catherine's mother, a very strong lady, dead now many years, uh, She, I went to see her just shortly after I met Catherine and decided we were going to get married. And she said to me, no, Catherine is an only child and 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 she's rather delicate. She has this and that. And we've been, the family's been praying for years that she would meet the right man. I said to her, your prayers have been answered. <laughs> pretty confident about yourself, weren't you? (laughs) So we're going to have to end. If somebody wants to read more of your writing, Neil, can you give us the website? I know you have a blog. How can somebody read your work? I have a blog that I try to attend to daily. And if they put uh, down Neil, N-E-I-L, McKenty, M-C-K-E-N-T-Y, web log two. I hope that's so T-W-O or the number two? T-W-O. Okay. Oh, oh, no, the number two. The number two. Sure. So Neil McKenty Weblog 2. That's it. That's it. www.neilmckenty. No, they don't need that, that I at see. all. And There's they can th- read more of your work. They can read more of the blog. Sure. Neil, it's been a pleasure to have you back at Safe Space. Thank you so fun, much. Fun for me, Anne. Thanks. My thanks to Jen Hodgson for mixing the sound and Maurice Lennon for the music. If you have a request or a suggestion for a future show that you'd like to make, please email me at drannwmpg at gmail.com. That's dr.annewmpg at gmail.com. 
Coming up next is Money Talks with Allison.